And this morning we find ourselves in Luke chapter 9, verses 23 to verse 26. Let me read this for us. This is what God's word says, beginning in Luke chapter 9, verse 23. The words of Jesus, he said to all, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. Amen. Let's pray together. O Lord, we ask now that you would open our eyes to understand your word and that you would open our hearts to receive it by faith as the very words of the living God, the words meant for our life, our good and our blessing. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. When we come this morning to some heavy words from Jesus in his call to true discipleship. And here, Jesus effectively tells us that if you want to be my disciple, if you want to follow me, you need to give up everything. Not just some things, but everything. Even yourself. Following me is not some easy, casual interest in spiritual things, but rather it is exactly what the word implies, that following me means leaving everything behind and following me, going wherever I go. You must give up your whole life, even if it means giving it up to the point of death. And before we think that this was just some special uh, program for the accelerated Uh, disciples who are uh, very, very hyper-spiritual, just for the 12 who are closest to Jesus, it actually says in verse 23 that he said this, Jesus said this to all. Now the previous passage in verses 18 to 22, Jesus was speaking to his closest disciples, but in verse 23, it is explicitly mentioned that Jesus turned to everybody and said this, to all. And so the words here are not for the rare, specially gifted people who are super Christians, but Jesus is describing here the ordinary, normal Christian life. What it means to be a Christian at all. In other words, Jesus' words here must be true of everyone who professes Christ as their Savior and Lord. Now, I think there are two common ways where we read a passage like this and we can end up with the wrong impression and a wrong response to these words of Jesus. The first way is just to flat out ignore it because, well, the demand seems so excessive and unreasonable to us that we just kind of assume, eh, maybe that's not really what he meant. Maybe it doesn't apply to me. But again, Jesus said this to everybody. If anybody would come after me, he says it. Anybody wants to follow me, this is what it's going to look like. And so we can't ignore it. And to do so would be to reject Jesus and his words altogether in unbelief. It would be to effectively walk away from him. But the other way, I think, 
we commonly misconstrue this passage is to respond in a way where we are simply overwhelmed and condemned even by it. Where we want to obey Jesus' words and we want to align ourselves with this biblical picture of discipleship, but taking at face value, it doesn't really seem feasible, at least especially in our context because after all jesus said take up your cross daily deny yourself lose your life that is be willing to suffer and die for jesus but i mean let's be real we don't really face severe persecution as americans no one is trying to kill us because of our faith or crucify us at least not yet And so in some sense, I think as modern American Christians reading this, it's easy for us to feel like we are daily failures by default, and we just have no idea how this passage is meant to apply to us today. It seems out of reach for us, and especially while we live in these uh, prosperous conditions of freedom from persecution, and so we don't really feel ministered to, spoken to by this passage, and perhaps some of us may even feel some subconscious guilt that we're not quite living up to this radical picture. But you see, the common thread of both types of responses is that Jesus' words seem unrealistic and out of touch in one way or another. And the reason for that sentiment is that we make the error of overly focusing on the pragmatics of what Jesus said, rather than honing in on the principle that he is conveying to us. You know, I think sometimes we can be a little dense when it comes to scripture in that when we read it, we just want to be given this instruction manual. Do this, live like this, buy this car, live by that house, and have our lives micromanaged and just to do what we are told When God is actually much more intent on illustrating his heart and his character to his children, that we might know him, that we might relate to him, that there might be a living relationship with him. And thus, that through all of this, God would instill in us spiritual instinct and a spiritual sense that is after his likeness. And so that's the case here. It's crucial that we don't miss the sense and the principle of what Jesus is conveying by these words. Irrespective of where you live, what is your environment, what you have or what you don't have. Because the point is this. Jesus is saying, to be a Christian means that you are no longer your own. There is no concept of self anymore. Because now... You belong entirely to someone else, namely Jesus Christ, your Savior. And in this sense, you have died to yourself. There's no more me, myself, my wishes, my desires, my plan, my money, my time. Because you are now in Christ. Your very identity and existence is defined by another person, Jesus, because you have been united to him by faith. And so what this means then in your life is that your will is now being defined 
by His will. Your plans are now being defined by His plans. Your life on earth is being defined by how He wants you to live. This is the paradigm of a true disciple of Jesus. As Paul says in Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live. What are you talking about, Paul? You are living. You're alive. You're breathing. No, but Paul is saying, no, the way I think, the way I operate, the way I view things, my whole worldview and outlook, it's that it is no longer I who live, but it is Christ who lives in me. And this life that I now live by flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. You see, this is the mindset and governing principle of a Christian who has been truly born again. That he understands himself to no longer be his own, no longer belong to himself exclusively, but rather that he belongs to Christ entirely. That every Christian is owned by Jesus. And so happy because of it. And it's because the Christian has this mindset and this governing principle in life that in the event that something like persecution comes, then it would stand to reason that you'd be willing to bear the physical cross of suffering and torture for Christ because you believe that your life is not your own. And if it be God's will that you lose your life to the sword, then so be it. Even through tears and much pain and grief, because it is the will of my Lord. See, this is the picture of true discipleship that Jesus is depicting. It has more to do with mindset and attitude of how you live, how you see yourself. Now, it's very important to understand that Jesus here is not explaining how to become a Christian. As though you become a Christian by living a very sacrificial life like this and proving yourself to be spiritually worthy and then you will earn some kind of uh, affirmation from Him. No, no, no. Jesus is here describing the life of one who already is a Christian. This is a description of the paradigm of the Christian life day to day. Hence, Jesus says in verse 23... If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily. It is a description of daily Christian living. You know, it's just like how in the Sermon on the Mount, as we saw back in Luke chapter 6, Jesus is not telling you what you need to do in order to enter God's kingdom. But there in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is describing daily life in the kingdom. Right? How a citizen of God's kingdom behaves, illustrating how a Christian thinks, what he is motivated by, what he values. He's describing the life of someone who has already entered the kingdom by faith. And so again, it's the same thing here, that Jesus is describing true Christian living, the attitude and the mindset of a converted soul. And the emphasis is that one of the clearest marks of a true disciple is not only how he views God, but how he views himself as a result of how he views God. Now, to put it negatively, it's this. Jesus says, look, if you think, if you say that you follow me, if you say that you're my disciple, 
But you still hold on to your life like it belongs to you. And you still insist on maintaining your full control over your life. That you want to be the one to dictate the terms of your life. And where you're going to go, how you're going to live, and map out everything. And you want that to be exactly how it goes. Then I don't think you understand what it means to follow me. I don't think you're following anyone, frankly, but yourself. If you claim to be my disciple and you, you pray regularly to God, wow, that's really good, that's impressive. But truth be told, all of your prayers are really just you asking God to help you do your will, to make your desires and wishes come true, without any second thought about maybe what God's will might be for your life. And I think you're sadly mistaken about what this whole thing is about being his disciple. If this describes you, then the problem with this picture is that you are still living your independent, autonomous life. You might have sprinkled some Jesus on top of it, but your inward heart and attitude has never changed. You're still your own master. And and ironically, the reality is that as your own master, you're actually a slave to sin. You see, although Jesus' words here may sound very demanding, they are actually the words of grace as he calls us to die to ourselves. Because Jesus has come to save us out of great love and care for us. But the question is, what has Jesus come to save us from? This is a million dollar question. Well, if you look in the Old Testament, God depicted his saving work in many ways, but chiefly and preeminently displayed through the exodus from Egypt. There we see God rescuing his people from out of slavery to Pharaoh, breaking the chains, liberating them from captivity. And so it's in these terms that God chose to illustrate his work of salvation, freedom from slavery. But as we come to the New Testament, in the fullest revelation of gospel salvation in Christ, how does that analogy continue? What does the Bible say? That we are enslaved to and therefore need freedom from. Now, of course, the easy Sunday school answer is sin. We're enslaved to sin. We need to be freed from sin. But let's think about it a little more deeply and let's try to describe it and elaborate on it more tangibly and concretely. How does sin enslave us? What does sin enslave us to? And the answer is this, that sin ultimately enslaves us to ourselves. Because sin rejects God as God and makes ourselves our own God. And this is the original deception in the garden, isn't it? And I know I talk about Genesis 3 often, but there's a reason why. It's because... There, in the fall 
of man, there you find almost everything you need to learn about what sin is. Because what happened that day was the door into which sin entered the world. And so how did the serpent deceive Adam and Eve? What was the deception? And what was so deceiving about it? What was so persuasive? He said to them, eat of this forbidden tree and you will be like God. Well, what does it mean to be like God? Knowing good and evil. What the servant was implying was, you won't need God anymore to tell you what is good and what is evil. You'll be able to determine that all by yourself. You won't need to depend on God for how to live. You won't need to hang on His every word anymore and have Him guide you and have to follow Him because you can be your own judge of what is good for you and what is not good for you. You can be the one to define what is good and not good apart from God. And you can forge your own path as to how you want to live. And all of this was implying, you'll finally be free from God's chains. As though God were like Pharaoh. And this was the deception. That freedom is found in being independent from God. Cutting yourself off from God. But that is a stone cold lie. Because freedom is found, hear it now, true freedom is found in being bound to God. Because we were made for God. It's just like how a fish was made for the ocean. It was designed and created to stay within the domains of water and within the boundaries of being underwater. The fish is actually the freest creature. It swims, it thrives, it glides freely wherever it wants to go within its proper domain. But it was as if the devil convinced the fish, hey, you're so enslaved to water. Oh, God put you in that? Why don't you come out to dry lands and you'll be free? And well, as soon as it does, it's dead, paralyzed, immobile, constricted by lifelessness. That was the deception. Just as a, a fish was created to be bound to water, we were created to be bound to God, who is our very life. And in Him, within Him, we are most free. But sin deceived us and we have believed that lie. And sin has taken human beings who were created to be God-centered, reflecting His image. And it has inverted that design and turned that heart inward, self-centered. This is what's going on all today in the worldly ideology. Love yourself. Be true to yourself. Self, 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 self. It's the modern self. And look at how enslaved everyone is to sin, to misery, to unhappiness because of it. They've believed this lie. 
And they suffer because of it. This is why Ephesians chapter 2 verse 3 says, We once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. Carrying out. It's a language of being ordered and we're, we're just following and obeying the orders because we're slaves to our own passions, enslaved to self, our own independent wills as opposed to the will of God. And again, Titus chapter 3, verse 3, that we were once slaves to various passions and pleasures. Our fleshly desires, fallen desires which are opposed to the will of God, turned away from Him. And it's in this context of our fallen spiritual condition that Jesus says, Come, follow me, die to yourself, and you will find true life in me. In me, you can live. In me, you can be free. Because I have come to save you from self. And only when there is death to self can there be true life. This is the gospel of God's salvation. And this kind of explains why the gospel being so Free and so gracious and so kind and, and giving everything to sinners. Why so many would reject this gift? This gift of love and blessing and eternal life. Because there is nothing more offensive to sinners than the call of the gospel, which is to give up self and to trust Christ. That there is life in Him and only in Him. Because the sinful heart loves autonomy, self-governance, following your own fleshly instincts. But Jesus warns in verse 24, whoever would save his life, whoever would preserve his life, would lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will actually save it. Now notice how this instinct of sinful nature is defined here by this principle of self-preservation it's this way of living where you have a greed and a spirit of hoarding about you where you're always holding on to your life and everything that you have with a very tight grip and jesus says if you do you'll actually lose it now how do you know if you are being dominated by this mindset of self-preservation well, in a general sense, it's by looking in the mirror and asking yourself, very honestly, what is my driving purpose in life? What is my main motive that drives all of the decisions I make and all the ways I plan for my life and all the ambitions and hopes that I have for the future? What is it? What's my, what's my end game? Well, the one who is self-preserving lives for the goal of just trying to have the best possible life now. That's where they're driven by. That's the thing that motivates them. That's the thing that colors in every decision. When there's A and B, what makes them choose A and not B is that. That goal. Because such a person regards his money, possessions, family, relationships, investments, talents, everything about his life as ultimately belonging to himself. 
And that's why they maintain such a tight grip because it all belongs to them. They need to be the ones to protect it. And so they're afraid to lose what is rightfully theirs. And perhaps a really good question to ask, and we should always be asking ourselves this, is what if God were to take away some of those things, even the good things I have? How would I respond? Would it be in humble submission, even through tears and pain, Or would it be in anger? Because you feel that God stole something from you. When in reality, it was never yours to begin with. You see, self-preserving people, their greatest fear is to lose the things of earth. And they'll do anything to protect it. To keep it, to hold on to it, even at the cost of their spiritual well-being. And this is the driving force behind this this greed, this ambition uh, to to maximize earthly happiness. While you still feel some semblance of control that you want to hold on to that. Now again, the problem is not that you prefer happiness over misery that you would rather if given the choice choose pleasure over pain that in and of itself is not a problem that's just basic human nature even jesus in the trueness of his human nature desired to escape suffering why because suffering is not fun but the problem is that temporal earthly happiness is your ultimate priority in life and it's your goal That it is the determining factor of how you live, where you live, how you spend your time and money, what kind of a job you have, etc., etc. We just keep going on and on. But see, all of that is the main thing that you think about. But knowing God, growing in Christ, maturing in holiness, living in obedience, serving God's people, these are very low on the priority list, if at all there. How many Christians have I seen make a shipwreck of their faith? Because driven by career ambitions, they went after a job that took them away from the church. And you see them drifting away slowly and slowly and slowly until they fall off a spiritual cliff. How many young parents have I seen who as soon as kids come into the picture... They fall headlong into idolatry. And they, the whole world, their whole lives and their world revolves around kids. I love kids. I love my son. Such amazing joy. And God gave us this blessing for us to enjoy. But the greatest blessings of God, all of God's blessings can be only truly enjoyed when we hold them with an open hand. But as soon as you grip it very tightly... You will lose it too. See, Jesus tells us that the true disciple sees his money, his possessions, his family, all that he has, all that he is, as ultimately belonging to God. For the parents here, do you see your own kids? They are your own kids. God gave them to you. They are yours, but do you see them ultimately as not belonging to you, but that you have been stewarded your kids, and that God has called you to raise them 
lovingly and faithfully in the Lord. And only then will you actually enjoy a wonderful two-way healthy relationship, even as they grow into adult years. Because they won't have to have the burden of being the source of all of your joys and satisfactions. But you see, the true disciple sees all of life and everything in it as God's. And so they see themselves ultimately as stewards of what God has graciously and so generously entrusted to them. And their daily motive is to strive to discover how to use what God has stewarded to them for the purpose of glorifying Him and serving Him. And it's only when we think this way that then we can actually enjoy the things that God has entrusted to us the best. Church, which description fits you? Do you see your life as yours? Mine, mine, mine. Or do you hold all that you have and all that you are with a very loose grip, with an open hand? What, what is the thing that drives your life? What are you living for? And Jesus warns us here that if you are driven by this life of self-preservation, devoid of love for God, then the tragic irony is that in your endeavor to try to keep it with your own firm grip, you will lose everything. You'll lose the very thing that you are trying so hard to keep. Verse 25, Jesus says, For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses and forfeits himself? Do you hear Jesus' appeal? Do you hear him pleading with souls? Come on, guys. Let's reason together. Let's be reasonable. Let's think about this. What good is it if you gain everything in this temporal little world, but you end up forfeiting everything, and you're eternally lost and bankrupt and empty? Because... Don't you understand that this life of self-seeking ambition, self-pleasing orientation, this is antithetical to the gospel and that this is leading you to an eternal death. This is a terrible wager. It's a terrible trade-off. What good is it to have everything you want in this life and more and have all of your desires come true but lose your soul? That is spiritual suicide. Those two things are not compatible. And so Jesus is saying, come on, just wake up. Just stop and think for a moment. Your soul is far too precious to be wasted on these temporal, perishing things. Don't you know that they don't satisfy? In this consumeristic America, why is it that millions of dollars are are poured into marketing. Oh, look at this, the iPhone 3. Oh, next, the iPhone 4. Oh, next, the iPhone 5. Trade it in and get a new one. New one, a new one. Why? If it were truly satisfying, you would have one and keep it forever. But it's not. And, and, and this desire and this thirst for chasing after earthly pleasures. I'm not saying you can't upgrade your iPhone. Okay, that's not what I'm saying. But I'm saying it's just this, it's, it's embedded in this culture where we're constantly striving after the earthly things over and over again 
the next car, the next house, the next nice job, the next big house. And to live for these things is utterly foolish. Even you know. Even your own habit shows that you know those things don't satisfy in the end. But only Christ, knowing Him, investing in the things of His kingdom, living for His purposes, brings you a fulfillment that no earthly thing can bring to you. Do not be deceived by the false promises of this world. Take heed to Jesus' warning. But if you don't, verse 26, For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. Now why does Jesus say, whoever is ashamed of me? Because, well, if you refuse to deny yourself, then the alternative is that you're denying Jesus. And so you are effectively being ashamed of Jesus. And if you deny Him and His words, then He will deny you when He returns. Because you will have persisted in rebellion against Him, insisting that life as your own God and Master is better than life under the one King and Master Jesus. And when He returns, He will give you over to your desires. And you will then realize, it will be too late, but you will then realize just how deceitful sin really was and how foolish it was to trust in its false promises. If you're here this morning and you're living a life of denying Jesus and His words, then the really good news for you is this, that in God's amazing patience and mercy toward you, you are still alive. And He hasn't returned yet. He could at any moment, but He hasn't returned yet. Which means that every second and every breath you breathe is God giving you yet another opportunity to repent and return to Him. And if you do, He will never deny you. When has Jesus ever denied anyone who turned to Him? No matter how sinful and lost they were. He is never ashamed to call sinners his brothers because he came to bear the shame of their sin on the cross for those he came to save. Friend, don't play games with your soul. Trust Jesus' words that you need to be freed from yourself and come and bring your life to him and lay it down at his feet. Die to yourself so that you might finally truly rise to new life in Christ. And only then you will find joy, happiness, meaning, fulfillment in a life that is lived under His loving will and care and lived for His glory. Now church, this same verse, verse 26, gives us a much needed encouragement by implication. Because here we're also reminded of what awaits us when Jesus returns, when our faith turns to sight. That He will come and return in the fullness of heavenly glory. But what that also means for us 
is that it will be the day of our reward. Our vindication. When we as believers will be glorified in heavenly glory. And this is how much Jesus loves his people. And, and just how closely and intimately he is united with them. Such that when he comes, we will share in his glory. It's not just that we will see that glory from afar and be like, wow, that's really impressive. But we ourselves will be eternal partakers of that glory with an unspeakable splendor that cannot be fathomed on earth. Do you realize that the New Testament reveals that God will reward his people not just with admission into heaven, but that all who are faithful to him unto the end will be exalted into glory in and with Christ, inseparable from him. This is why Paul says in 2 Timothy 4, I have fought the good fight, I have finished the race, I have kept the faith, henceforth there is laid up for me the, what? The crown of righteousness. Whoa, 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 hold up. That crown is only for Jesus, isn't it? But he will crown every believer with his own glory that he will share with them. Revelation 3.21, Jesus says, The one who conquers, the one who overcomes, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne. Huh? You see, we have this conception in our minds that we will see Jesus on his throne and we'll bow down to him. But he wants us to sit with him I don't know, I'm going to be like, uh, Jesus, it's really okay. I, I don't know if I really should be sitting there. I think I'm, I, I'll just, I'm happy just being the court jester, you know? As long as I can be in your courts. But the promise for all who overcome this life of faith, He will seat us with Him on His throne and that we will reign with Him. And so Paul says in 1 Corinthians 2, when no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love Him. All of Scripture echoes the same exhortation that the Holy Spirit presses to our hearts. Keep persevering in faith. Keep going. Keep following Jesus. Keep denying yourself. It's not easy in this fallen world to trust God, to live for His will, to not be conformed to the patterns of this world, to deny ourselves for the sake of Christ. But it will be so worth it. In the end, there is an appointed day of our vindication. And God promises us that we will never regret anything that we gave up in this life for the sake of following Him. Wherever He would lead us. You know, to be very honest with you, if it were up to me, I would not live here in California, in the Bay Area. I know for a fact that life would be easier and more comfortable for us as a family somewhere else. I, I could have gone to many other places. And actually, ever since we moved here two years ago, back to the Bay Area, I 
to my surprise, I've only grown in my, in my personal distaste for living here. I just feel like I don't fit in. I don't belong here. Not fit in as in I feel like a loner, but I just, this is not where I want to be. I'm not trying to be a hater, okay? I, I grew up in Pleasanton, okay? My, my, my hometown is P-Town. But, but all that this place, this, this Bay Area, all that this place is, and all that it represents ideologically, culturally, economically, and just what a spiritually barren this place is. I personally don't love it here. I, I, I dread kind of the thought of having to raise my kids here. I sigh a big sigh every time I think about it. Now, before you guys all think I'm planning to leave the church, okay, let me just jump in and clarify that my point is this, that ironically, it's actually through these thoughts over the last couple of years that I'm convinced more than ever, you know, I think God wants me here. I think he wants me here for the long run. Because I know for certain it is not my will to be here. And so it must be his. And judging by how much I don't like living here, I'm probably going to end up dying here. That's probably just that's how God does things. And I'm at least mentally prepared for that. I, I know I could have an easier, more comfortable life, according to my own eyes, somewhere else. But the thing that keeps me here, the thing that keeps me going, is the assurance that this is the will of God. And it is the assurance and the promise that every little thing that, I've, that I'll ever have to deny myself of in this life for His sake, and they're actually all very little in the big scheme of things, that every little thing that I've had to sacrifice, it will pale in comparison to the glory that will be revealed and the glory that I will enjoy with Him in the next life. And church, I know for some of you, in many different ways, that following Jesus hasn't been easy. And you've made many decisions, personally or as a family, that perhaps went against the grain because of your convictions, your faith, your trust. Maybe loved ones give you a hard time because of certain family decisions you've made. They don't understand it. Whatever it is, may I encourage you to look ahead to the day of your vindication. Remember that all that you have ever had to leave behind for, to follow Jesus will be repaid 10,000 10, times full in the unfading glory of your eternal inheritance. Stored up in heaven for you awaiting God's appointed time of revealing. Let us never forget that despite the great cost of following Jesus, it is all but an investment into the things of eternity, which will yield infinite and glorious returns. Nothing will be in vain, and it will all be so worth it in the end. And so then, let us remain faithful to our Lord and Master. Stay the course until he calls us home. Let's pray together. Gracious Lord, thank you for your promises. For without them we would never be saved. And without them we would never be sustained. 
We thank you that despite the cost of following Christ, that there is so much more than we would ever pay for. That there is an infinite, undeserved reward for sinners like us who have received His saving grace as He has come to free us from our bondage to self. And Lord, would you instill this truth in us each and every day and help us to live by it, to live by faith and not by sight. And now as we turn to receive your visible sign of your gospel through the bread and the cup, we ask that you would bless it and set it apart from its ordinary element for an extraordinary use to minister to us, to confirm to us your promises, not only in the forgiveness of sins, but that as we take it, we truly do proclaim your death until the day you return. Turn our gaze upward and onward by faith. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.